You're listening to Film School, broadcasting every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time at KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, and on the web at KUCI.org slash Film School. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. Unfolding like a narrative drama, Laura Poitras's new documentary, My Country, My Country, follows the agonizing predicament of one man caught in the tragic contradictions of the U.S. occupation of Iraq. Poitras spent eight months in that country from June 2004 to February 2005 working alone in the field, operating both camera and sound. She received a Peabody Award for her last documentary, Flag Wars, which premiered on PBS's POV documentary series. Laura Poitras, welcome to Film School. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, thanks for coming on. First of all, congratulations on your nomination for Best Documentary Feature Oscar. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's very exciting. Are you feeling good about that? Is it? Did it change you at all? <laughs> <laughs> you know, my feeling was just that when I, um, when I heard, of course, it's great news, but I'm also really, it's a great group of films, and, mm-hmm. I, and I'm really happy to be among those films, and, and also particularly that, that James' film was also nominated, and I know that you guys have talked to him, James Longley. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Who's a rock yeah. and fragments. And so you have, and it's nice to have two films that deal with Iraq among the five, but also the, the two films that actually look at them. Yeah, the War from Iraqi. Two very wonderful, strong films. Very, they're, they're, both are incredible. Yeah, and yeah. by the way, I mean, as you just as said, told from the point of view of the Iraqi people. Yeah. Exactly, and that's so, I mean, when we think about how much news coverage we actually have on Iraq and how little actually we, we know, we hear from Iraqis and we know about Iraqis, I think that that's, it's a great message to send. It's curious how that works, too, that, uh, you know, for, for all that we're supposed to know about this country... Yeah. When 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 you see a film like yours, it suddenly brings it home. There's a whole different context and feeling that you get after watching a film like this as opposed to watching a talking head telling you who attacked what and what day. Exactly. Unfortunately, the debate around the war, both for and against, is really a debate about America, not actually a, mm-hmm. a debate about the people who are um, dying in the tens of thousands. Do you, by that, do you mean uh, by the the different interest within our country, sort of political interest? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I wanted to make this film so that we could feel a little bit about this war. You know, that instead of just have ideological or polemics about it, to actually try to feel a little bit about it and understand what does it mean for Iraqis and what does it mean for the people from the U.S. who are actually dying there. And, and I think that the questions you ask and the concerns you have when you look at it from the perspective of the people whose lives are really on the line, it's very different than the kind of political, polarizing, absolutely not bipartisan debate you have in yeah. the U.S. And yeah. We were fortunate earlier, um, previous show, we just interviewed Barry Landau and talking about the 30 years of war that has, has mm-hmm. gone on in, in Iraq and that part of the world, but Iraq and Iran, and how many of the people have just grown up knowing nothing but war. It's really unimaginable. You can't even begin. The doctor that I filmed, he's, he says that he's known 200 people personally who've been killed or assassinated. Mm-hmm. And that's just really hard to be and to comprehend. As a, a guy living in Southern California my entire life, I know less than a dozen people in my own life that have died in my lifetime, and that's quite a long time now. But yeah. <laughs> 
It's yeah. hard, to, uh, hard to imagine. Tell us the story of what inspired you to make this film. What got you started on this? In the fall of 2003, so about six months into the, um, the occupation, I picked up my weekly New Yorker and started reading this piece by George Packer. It's called The, the War After the War, and midway through it, I knew I was going to make a film there. And the reason why is because it was the first thing I'd actually read that expressed something about the tragedy of the war and that actually made you feel something. I mean, that you actually, I read this and I was crying. Uh-huh. And he talked particularly about the death of Sergio DeMillo, who was the UN envoy who was sent to Baghdad in the summer and was killed in the, in the attack on the UN. And clearly the UN, you know, opposed the war from the beginning, but they then send their, you know, their highest, one of their highest diplomats to go and, and then he dies there. There was just something about this sort of endless tragedy of people who, who were dying there. How did you find the the characters that you know, when you got to Iraq? Yeah. Uh, had, what was well? Let's even before that. What did you do? Did you have any plans at all when yeah, you landed? Yeah, I, mean, I did have plans. I mean, you know, oh, uh-huh. oh, um, and things always change. I mean, you think you have one plan and then it changes. So I went there. I mean, I do cinema verite documentaries, so that means I'm looking for things that are unfolding, and I really wanted to understand the contradictions between the fact that the U.S. had you know invaded the country preemptively. And, mm-hmm. and to bring democracy. And those things just seem so fundamentally contradictory. Yeah. So I wanted to tell a story that would capture that, those contradictions. So the first thing I did is I actually contacted the military and asked for access to film what they were doing in terms of nation building because the military were going in and, you know, were put in charge of this whole project to bring democracy. And so I thought that that was something that was important to try to document. And then, so they said yes. And then I got there and realized this, that there was a very huge divide between the reality that you saw among the, the U.S. and Iraq and Iraqis. And so I knew that I needed to expand upon that approach. And um, I got permission to film this inspection of Abu Ghraib prison. Mm-hmm. And this was about three months after the, the torture photographs were public everywhere. So I go there, and there were 3,000 men being held behind razor wire. And the, the inspection was actually being conducted by a group of Iraqis. And it was about 12 it was being led by this physician, Dr. Riyadh, who was going and talking, you know, detainee, detainee, you writing down their name, what's going on, how long they've been there. And, and many of them had been there over a year with, in detention with no charges being filed. And then at some point they're going through each of the different camps and they, they find, or one of the detainees said they have to look that they're juveniles. And then they find this group of children. And they start talking to these children who've been there for months, and there's a nine-year-old. And then, so there was this amazing scene where you had Dr. Riyadh, who, who speaks English, talking to the U.S. military and saying, like, you can't hold children, you know, at Abu Ghraib mm-hmm. prison. And then you have the military guy saying, defending it and saying these are dangerous criminals. And mm-hmm. so there was something in that moment where I just knew, I said, okay, this is the film. Like, if we have to try to explain why it's not okay to be holding juveniles, this is the story to follow. And so then I ended up following this, this doctor, and it was that was, that just sort of started the journey. How was it being a woman there, being on your own? Did you ever feel threatened at all? Did, did you feel maybe the American military or any group there was suspicious of you? I did work alone, and so I would yeah. move yeah. between, um, you know, where the, the U.S. military was staying in the green zone, which is where all the planning for the elections were happening, and then I would leave. I'd just sort of, you know, walk outside and then meet Dr. Riyadh or someone from his family, and then they would take me to their house, and I would live with them for a week or two weeks. And, you know, when I was doing it, there really weren't, there weren't Westerners who were 
living with the Rockies in the fall of 2004 and the beginning of 2005. And it was really extraordinary that they took me in. And I think one of the reasons that they took me into their home was the fact that you know, being a woman made it easier for me to be able to, to live with the family, and particularly to capture what you see of the, the, the dynamics between the doctor and his, and his daughters, who are so great, and his wife. And then um, there's sort of banter in the house. And so I wouldn't have ever been able to, to have access to that if I were a Western man working there. And then in terms of the military, you know, my experience with them, I mean, there was plenty of times when I felt threatened, but it was usually when I was with Iraqis approaching a checkpoint. I thought those were always the most dangerous situations or U.S. military convoy, if you get too close to them. I mean, they're very, very um, on edge. And so there were plenty of times where I would approach a checkpoint. It was interesting because when I would leave the military base, I would tell the military not to shoot me that I was going to get into a car, but when I would come back, I would come back with a scarf on, and there was oftentimes, you know, a lot of yelling, a lot of gun pointing, and, you know, because I would approach the checkpoint wrong, and, and I would always think that this is, you know, if I'm going to get hurt, it's going to be at a, at a checkpoint. But at the same time, the military were also incredibly transparent in letting me film their election planning, which was pretty high-stakes um, operation to allow a camera into, and, and that was pretty extraordinary that they allowed what they, what they did. But in terms of the danger, I mean, you know, I mean, I think we all know the danger. I'm going to take a step back here. Yeah. So we, we get sort of the big picture yeah. of what the documentary is. You're there to see what life is like for uh, Iraqis, the, the people themselves. And, but in addition to that, you're there at the time when the election was taking place, which as people in this country will remember, the people with the purple fingers and all of and how what a triumph that was. And it was a triumph of, of certainly of the humanity of the Iraqi people. Walk us through this, this whole election process. Dr. Riyadh was running for office. Yeah, I mean, he was, just, he was a fantastic character for me to follow because here you had someone, he's, you know, he's a Sunni and he's a doctor and he's, he's against the U.S. occupation and yet he believes in the importance of political participation and democracy and so he decides to run for election. So he's this guy, he's both the more extremists think he's a traitor because he's participating in political life, and then the U.S. military think he's a bad guy because he's constantly criticizing them. And so he was this sort of moderate Sunni who was putting his life on the line every day. And so it follows his story and what his political party, the Sunni party, does um, and ultimately ends up boycotting the election at the 11th hour. But that also follows all the planning around the election. So you have a lot of subplots in addition to Dr. Riyadh. So there's a subplot of the U.N., there's a subplot of a group of Australian private security contractors or mercenaries, depending on you know, how you want to define it, but they're hired to come and, and transport election material. So you have these you know, Australians with guns running around the countryside, buying arms and, and um, moving election materials. So there's a lot of, sort of subplots around this whole mm-hmm. idea of how do you conduct an election in such, such a dangerous environment. Mm-hmm. We're speaking with Laura Poitras. The film is My Country, My Country, Academy Award nominated, and Spirit Award nominated. What do you exciting think? Exciting weekend. Yeah, yeah. You, are you going to be out here for this? Uh... Are you kidding? You think I'd miss it? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. Yeah, well, terrific. I, no, I'm going to come. It's going to be a great weekend, and I'm going to bring you know some of the folks who made the film possible. So it'll be a great time to celebrate. And, uh, unfortunately, I can't get Dr. Riyadh and his family here because the U.S. doesn't really give visas for Iraqis, which is you know I think you know as the United States when we think about how many people are being displaced and dying because of this war. It's well, we do. We do know that we were talking previously, two and a half to three million Iraqis have fled the country, and these are the professional class. Yeah, yeah. I mean, actually, Dr. Riyadh and his family have just 
fled, so they're refugees now. And oh, I was going to ask you. Okay. I just got an email from one of his daughters, a SEAL, and you know, I was emailing them. I said, if I find myself doing interviews and stuff, what do you want me to yeah. say to Americans? And actually, I read something that she wrote. She said, she said, I want you to tell the American people that because of the war, we lost everything beautiful in our lives, even our simple and sweet dreams and our ability mm-hmm. to smile. Right now, living as a refugee, you know, like... Is she in Jordan or Syria, or do, well, do you want to do you really say? say yeah, okay, yeah. Right, yeah, okay, I understand. But she's, but she's out of the country, and oh. they're seeking asylum, and, and, and like, as you said, there's probably between internally displaced and people who have actually left the country, you know, close to four million, which is... So it, that, that in and of itself, forget all of the other insanity that's going on, four million displaced people is a humanitarian disaster it's, of yeah. epic proportion. Yeah, it is, and... Dr. Riyadh, he was, it was so hard for him to leave. He never left during Saddam, you know, he, he stuck it out. And, and he said when he left that he was the only doctor working at the hospital in his neighborhood, you know, and so he knew, he knew what would happen when he left, but yet everybody, I mean, people on his block were being assassinated. I was going to ask, by one. Was, yeah. the, was the reason he left was yes. because the, uh, the, the Shiite militias and the, the death squads yeah the death i mean squads. he said that uh, a week after he got out of the country he got an email that four of his no. local council members had been found dead and they were killed with drills to the head you yeah. know drill holes and right. i mean as we're sort of debating here like troops no troops it so doesn't doesn't begin to deal with the fact that like you know who is left you know who is left there you know to to build this country and and what is the what are the ravages i mean i just i, I don't think we have any comprehension. From what you're describing, it sounds as if what's left are the, the angriest and the most radically, the radicalized people with, with very little resources and very little hope of, for a future. Is yeah. yeah. Wow. It's, it's, well, now I'm depressed. No. <laughs> well, I understand. That was very touching what yeah. his daughter said, too, what you, she wrote to you. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and meanwhile, we have a president who's saying the Iraqi people owe us a debt of gratitude. Yeah. Right. I mean, I really think that the question, you know, for me is, what is our moral obligation as a country to the people of Iraq? And I think that it's, it's huge, and that that's the, that's the starting point for any conversation. And I'll listen to anything that could bring stability. You know, the country is hemorrhaging, and we're largely responsible for that, you know, by the invasion and also the mistakes that, we all, that have been well documented. And, and we're not talking about that. It's really hard to imagine. It's like as if you would, like run over somebody with your car and then you wanted them to like to say thank you yeah. you know like yeah. like no you think you have to help them i mean it's just yeah. it's so fundamentally and morally we're just asking the wrong questions here mm-hmm. did i get this right that your uh, the department of homeland security considers you a threat yeah i'm on a the homeland security has me on a watch list now. are you on a watch list so so i get there's all kinds of drama when i fly particularly internationally when i come back and oh they, my. they slip my passport but you know i need to contextualize that okay. because yeah, Homeland Security considers me a high threat, and they pull me aside when I re- return to the country. At the same time, I, I just was invited to a U.S. military war college to show the film to 600 majors for cultural understanding. So I'm, I've gone military bases being treated as a distinguished speaker showing my film you know, to <laughs> high-level officers who are going to be the sort of future war planners in the well, country. And then, you know, Homeland Security, I mean, there's somebody in, in Washington who thinks I'm some sort of, like, dangerous filmmaker. This uh, government is so fractured and schizophrenic and paranoid, it, it's hard to even really begin to even talk in any rational way about it. Yeah, uh, it is. And, and I uh, think that something that we, we sort of 
see it as a monolithic, and I think that there's, there are huge yeah. divisions, and particularly in the military. When I was at this military college, which wasn't long ago, it was right before the announcement of the troop increase. I asked everyone who I could talk to, I said, what do you think? And everyone, I mean, the military is completely demoralized. Yeah. They feel that they've been left holding the bag of something that they never asked for and aren't trained to do, yeah. and, and don't feel that this is any kind of a, of a strategy. Well, people talk about the end of the Vietnam War as a low point in the military, and I think we have reached that point here. And if we've ever come close to a military coup, I think we're rapidly approaching that point because I don't think... Oh, now, Mike. Well, I just think that... I, I mean, I'm, we're not going to have a military coup. I don't really mean that, but I think that the U.S., you seeing these ex-generals step forward and saying things that they would have never said. Uh, before, mm-hmm. how has was the distribution? Has been the distribution for the film here in the country? It was released theatrically by Zeitgeist, and then they're doing the DVD, which will be um, out in March. It'll be right. on the anniversary of the of the invasion. And also, I don't know if you reach in how far you reach into LA, but it's, the film is actually showing at the Monica at 11 a.m. on the weekend, so Saturday, Sunday, and then Monday, President's Day. So if people people are able to see it in a theater, which is always the best place. But um, but DVD will be ready in March. Laura Poitras, the film is My Country, My Country, Academy Award-nominated film. Good luck to you. Thank you so much. To learn more about Film School, listen to more interviews, or subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at org slash filmschool.